Welcome to the Debrief Podcast with Matt Brown, the podcast where pastor and author Matt Brown debriefs your questions about Christianity and current issues shaping our culture. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to Debrief. I'm going to be playing host today. Donna is out and my good friend, Professor Jim Bocoltz is here today, Professor of Mathematics and Physics, and we are going to answer all things beyond my level of intelligence. So here's what we do, Jim. We um, Can I call you Jim or do you want yeah, Dr. Bocoltz uh, or just Jim. the mad scientist? What would you like? Well, mad scientists work sometimes, but Jim's fine. Okay, Jim. Thank you, Jim. So uh, so the reason I wanted to ask you what I call you, so what they do to me sometimes is that we do a cold open, so I don't know what the question is. So you're so brilliant. We're going to start <laughs> off with a cold open today. So the first cold open question is, Jim, tell our audience what kind of student the young Matt Brown was when you first met him. How, how brilliant was the young Matt Brown? Interestingly enough, <laughs> I... I had you, I believe it was for college algebra. Okay. Is what I had been. And this was, what, 25 years yeah, ago? Yeah, we don't need to. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, the interesting thing was, I knew, I still remember you, right? How many okay. tens of thousands of students? I make did an I impression. Have? Yes. You made an impression. <laughs> so I still remember the room we taught in. Yeah. I still remember the, I remember we, remember we had green boards. Yeah. This mm-hmm. has been the blackboard day, except yeah, they yeah. were green. Yes. Right. And chalkboards. Yeah. And there was no such thing as PowerPoint slides or right. anything like that. And and we did all the math on the board and stuff like that. And for whatever reason, I I I just said, you know, Matt's gonna be someone someday. Aww. I just I just knew it. And so I still remembered you. And and probably from that class, I I probably don't remember anyone else, maybe. Mm. And yeah. um it was uh I, I, it wasn't your stellar mathematical yeah, abilities. It was just you yeah. as uh, as an individual. I, just I was not going were, to be Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> I just, but you were going to be someone and Thank I could you. tell it. And I still yeah. remember that this day. Um, yeah. If I could go back and tell young Matt Brown any piece of advice, it would be learn to shut up. I just couldn't. I could not control this mouth. And so it's, it's hilarious. I had no mathematical ability whatsoever, but you remember me. <laughs> But you brought up great questions. Yes. Would, I, I can even, believe it or not, I can even remember mm. you standing up and asking a question. Wow. Yes. So that's what a memory I have from that. Yeah. So. All right. Question number two. You ready for this one? Yes. Talk to me about your hair. About what your hair. What is it about scientists? Is it that your IQ, once it goes over a certain <laughs> level, it just goes wild? Your hair, you have like an Einstein look to you. So my... uh my son says that to me all the time. One of my kids, I have yeah. several kids, and and Matt says that to me all the time. Oh, you got that Einstein hair going. You got that yeah. Einstein hair going, and um, I love it. By the way, <laughs> it's 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 more. I don't know. I know why Einstein did it, right. and and but it's more in my case, and maybe maybe somewhat laziness. Not not mm-hmm. that I I shower every day and everything like that, but not getting in to get it cut again. Yeah, I it love just it. Let long it periods of time go without getting cut. You know, I love it. it so he yeah. just ends up that way. Now Einstein did on purpose. He intentionally rattled his hair oh, because okay. because of the mad science okay. this thing you were talking about. When he mm. became when he became Einstein, what right. made him Einstein? The world started putting in front page newspapers around the world. Mm. New York Times are saying Einstein dethrones Newton, and mm. he all of a sudden became just world famous in a household name. You know, he was kind of thought of this crazy uncle. 
Yeah. And so he intentionally ruffled up his hair to take pictures when they came by to take Yeah, them. I love it. So here's an interesting fact. So I, I got to hang out with Rick Warren, and he has a, a personal library. This thing is a trip. So it's it's all shell encased in this bomb-proof, fire-proof uh, wing of his private building. And he has documentation from church history that would just blow your mind. But the thing that stood out to me the most in the entire library was an article in Time magazine. I think it's 1941 or 42. Just after he came to America, he fled Germany. Um, uh, And he was talking about how impressed he was with Christians. And what he said in the article was, he said, I thought the universities in Germany would stand up to the Fuhrer, but they did not. He said, my profession, the academy, cowered at his strength. He said it was the church. The church stood up against him and spoke out against him and challenged him. And in the article, he talked about he had to reconsider, because before he was an atheist, and he had to reconsider, okay, maybe my area of thought is not as strong as possible. And I was so moved by the article, I asked Rick if I could take pictures of the um, the Time magazine, because he has the actual magazine from 1941. And it was, it was profound. And um, you know, I think it's what we see in academia today, um, you know, just bowing down to this new gender politics, gender ideology, where, you know, everybody in science knows that, you know, gender's binary. It's male and female. I mean, for the most part, there are people that there there is some question, extraordinarily small uh, percentage of people. But I just thought it was so interesting that what caused him to really reconsider God, he said in the article, was the faith of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and some of these other just incredible German leaders that were like, no, this is, this is wrong. And, um, you know, and, and they died, they died for their faith. And so many people don't realize, but it was not just Jews in concentration camps, which was horrible because they were selected for their, uh, ethnicity, but it was conservative Christians who were targeted for their faith and the fact that they spoke out against Hitler in his rise to power. So I thought that was fan, uh, just a fantastic article that during a tragic time, oftentimes, you know, we focus on when the church got it wrong, uh, and the church has gotten it wrong many, many times, but that was a, a moment in Germany where he, as a brilliant man, took notice and said, they got it right, and maybe I need to reconsider my faith. So, well, thank you for those two questions. Those are the surprises. Nothing else will be a surprise. I, I do have a very interesting point uh, to make about Einstein yeah. and, okay. and Hitler that very few people know. And and whenever I bring this up with other physicists, I've yeah. yet to find another physicist that's ever heard this. Like, I okay. just talking to him about it. Yeah. So maybe this going out wider, people start discussing it. Um, Einstein tried to rename relativity. Okay. He wanted to call it invariant theory. Okay. And he couldn't do it. And he had a reason why he wanted to rename it invariant theory. Because relativity, and this happens a lot in science, um, something happens in science and people will equate it to other things. Okay. It'll it'll pass over into theology, philosophy, right. ethics, mm-hmm. you know, and religion and stuff like that. And what happened was relative moralism took off hmm. in Germany and all around Europe because of relativity. And, they oh. have, and, and because... Because now time is relative and, and distances traveled is relative um, in, to your frame of reference. Right. What happened was more rel- moral, uh, moral relativism took off and right there was no longer absolute right and wrongs. Mm. And he was not that way. He said, right. there are absolute right and wrongs. There, yeah. Regardless of how you're born, your frame of reference in life, how you were born or anything, it makes it makes no difference. There are certain things mm-hmm. that are right and certain things are wrong, regardless of your frame of reference. Mm-hmm. And people were 
using Einstein's relativity to say, no, 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 no. Right and wrong depends on your frame of reference. Mm. And he really hated that. So he tried to name it uh, invariant theory. Now, this is his theory, and he couldn't get the world wow. to rename it, which is kind of weird. He then, um, he then actually, now I, I found several references now at this point to prove he really did say that. There's mm. more than one textbook that's now referring to this. Um, but the biggest thing it led to was he, he was so frustrated um, that he believed moral relativism led to the rise of Hitler. Hmm. And so he felt himself, now this is Walter Isaacson who wrote a biography, uh, written a lot of biographies, but big one on, on, on Einstein. And he says that Einstein himself had such a problem with moral relativism taken off through uh, the, the universities. He says, had that not happened, Hitler never came to power. Wow. And he partially blamed himself. Hmm. Einstein partially blamed himself because of relativity. Hmm. He says there is a connection between that and Hitler's rise. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I just appreciate his, his, uh, his authenticity because, you know, many of the things that the church gets blamed for and the church, you know, um, certainly has egg on its face and sin in our history, but, but many of these ideas come from, you know, science. I mean, not everything that, you know, Darwin argued for was beautiful and wonderful, you know, for all apes and, you know, and some of us are more evolved than others. We can treat each other in a very, very different way, as opposed to Genesis one twenty seven that says, regardless of your ethnicity, you are made in the image of God, you know, because, uh, Genesis one twenty seven doesn't identify an ethnicity. It just, Adam is kind of the generic form for man, like, Hey, you people. And so, all right. So, well, thank you for your honesty. And, um, and again, uh, super excited to have you on the show. And um, thank you for my one class in college on algebra that allowed me to graduate and move forward <laughs> and be the amazing human being that I am today. Thank you for not failing me. All right, let's talk briefly about the history of science in the church. Why have they always been at odds? Or or is this recent? What what happened and why? Kind of give us, uh, you know, a... A Cliff Notes version. Do they still have Cliff Notes? They had Cliff Notes. That's how that's how we cheated when I was in college. Now it's Google. But but back in college when I was your student, uh, we turned to Cliff Notes so we didn't have to read everything. So give us the kind of the condensed version of of why why is this that there this present tension between you know people in our church who are I'm more scientific and then people who are like well I'm more faith and they see these two kind of at each other's throats. So it's rather a new experience. Uh, this conflict model that that um, science and religion is at war with each other, mm -hmm. and it was an intentional. There was there's kind of it's kind of traced back to two books in the late 1800s. When I say recent, 1800s would still be recent compared to a couple thousand years ago and stuff right. like that, or even hundreds of years ago. Because you just if you go back to if you go back a little over a thousand years ago, you will find that who was doing. Um, science was the monotheistic religions. Right. It used to be very Islamic in the 9th century, 10th century, 11th century. That's where you get words like algebra, algorithm. Mm -hmm. Notice the al in there because yeah. these are Arabic words and so forth. Um, and then somewhere around the 13th century, the Catholic Church just kind of took over science. Right. And it became a big deal. The Pope's summer palace is an observatory. Hmm. And uh, monks and priests were assigned scientific duties because they, they felt like, hey, we need to study God's work to really right. understand God. And um, in, in, uh, and in fact, Galileo, who's considered the father of modern day science, um, took Romans 112 and used it to say that there are that God wrote two books. It's mm. called the two book worldview. Okay. And God wrote the Bible scripture, this actually lead to life, but he also wrote nature. Mm. And so you have the same author writing two mm. books. You should study both 
and you really won't know who God mm. is without studying both. Mm. So he took it so far. Now I got to be careful. I can't do this, but he took it so far to say, Hey, okay. If you don't read the Bible, that's a sin. You said earlier here, right. that's a problem. You're not reading the Bible. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. He said, if you're not doing science, that's a problem. Yeah. Cause that's the other book that you were, refi- that you're not reading about God. Mm. And so he said, not doing science is a sin. Wow. You know, yeah. so he was very strong and you should do both these. They're mm. both written by the same author mm. and you should do science. So he was, and so we're talking about, you know, that's 15, 1600s before him was Copernicus in the 1400s. Um, you had Johannes Kepler, Newton, Faraday, Mendel, Tesla. Uh, I, I want to drive one of those different yeah. Tesla. <laughs> no. Uh, well, no. Yeah. Well, no, it's named after him. Um, uh, Nicholas Tesla, uh, George Lemaitre, who who invented Big Bang Theory, mm. um, Fran- and modern-day Francis Collins, too. But, it, but it's been going on for years. So what happened was you had um, a couple of individuals, university professor and the first president of Cornell University, mm. want to split the two. They did not like it. If you find – I claim they're both, they were both atheists that didn't like the power that the church had and how much right. the church was doing – no one will say they were theistic, but people say, well, they were agnostic. I think they were trying to be vague somewhat about their beliefs. But um, for the most part, they did not like how much influence or how uh, that the church had on science, meaning how much the church was doing science, spending money on science, having their monks and, and priests do science and stuff. Yeah. And they didn't like, they wanted to separate it. So uh, um, J.W. Draper... And A.D. White both wrote books in the late 1800s. One was titled, uh, Draper's book was uh, titled The History of Conflict Between Religion and Science. Mm -hmm. And White's was titled A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology and Christendom. And these were both written in the late 1800s to try, and and they were kind of, well, they were, they they were very cherry-picked in nature on purpose. And most... Most historians do agree with that, that these were very biased books, trying to cherry pick these different things about, oh, the church did this against science, the church Mm -hmm. did this against science, and not talking about all the different people who were highly religious Mm -hmm. that that would even integrate science religion all the time. I mean, Sir Isaac Newton, who was kind of the the Einstein before Einstein, Mm -hmm. right? And Sir Isaac Newton um, believed... It didn't quite work out for him, but he believed that you could lead people to Christ through science, mm. through physics. Right. And what a lot of people don't know is Isaac Newton wrote more about theology wow. than he did science. That's incredible. You know, and so he was a very religious individual. Mm. Um, he ended up, uh, he ended up kind of didn't quite work um, mm-hmm. with his um, um, trying to drive people uh, towards um, uh, Christianity because. It was more of, um, well, his idea was this, look, if there was no God, if there was no creator, then the world should be just haphazard. You shouldn't be able to write down equations. You shouldn't be able to explain things. Mm -hmm. It should be non-deterministic whatsoever. You shouldn't be able to explain why the plans go around. So he thought, if I can explain, if I come up showing you the construct, how the universe was constructed, and I can show you these mathematical equations that explain how the universe works, Mm -hmm. well, there had to be a person to set this up. Mm -hmm. And so there had to be a creator. Right. So, um, but what it ended up promoting maybe more than anything was deism instead of theism. Mm. So even 
President Jefferson refers to um, refers to Newton as one of the reasons why he was a deist, not right. a theist. Yeah. Because okay, you showed me there's a creator, but you but where's the equations for prayer? Where's this interpersonal right. being? You know that you can pray to and answer your prayers and stuff like that. And, right. Well, and the answer for that is Christians is Christ. So he is the mediator between yeah. us and this all-powerful God who is beyond. And even the Gospel of John says no one has seen God, the Father, but the Son. So how do we connect to this almighty force, power, uh, unmoved mover for Aristotle? Uh, in John 1, 1, the word it is through Jesus. Um, you know, there's so many young people today who just feel like they can't, they can't be a person of faith and hold to science. How do you do that? Because you're both. So I grew up not really even knowing or thinking there was a conflict. Okay. So I went to public school from, from you know, first grade through my PhD. Okay. Everything. Um, so, so you was, didn't have professors that were anti-God when you were in school? Um, I did. Yes. No, I did in graduate schools where I started to run into them, amazingly so. And and when I was working on my master's at Texas A&M, and a and is supposed to be a fairly conservative public school, but I ran into mm. some issues with other. And I was really horrible at debating science and religion. Um, mm. My first, so my first year as a grad student, uh, we had a, one main office kind of where all the physics grad students mm. were. And uh, I was kind of trapped in the corner and there was this really good atheist on this side. I mean, this really good atheist on this side. And what I mean by is if you looked at the bookshelf, they both had Bibles on their bookshelf. Wow. They, loved getting arguments and they love to destroy you and try to use science to destroy the Bible. Wow. And so um I would all I would constantly, I guess, argue, debate with them like that. And I don't think I was good at it at all. And and mm. my other friends who were Christians in the department say, why do you why do you even debate with them? Shut mm. up. You're gonna get killed. It's two on one and they're ready for you. You yeah, know, yeah. they've prepared everything and they were really good at this. And I finally figured out um and my other Christian friend said, quit debating, quit debating. I go, I lost, didn't I? I lost. Yeah. <laughs> I'm losing the baits, aren't I? You know? And then what happened was before I left and came out here to finish my PhD at UCR, um, I kind of won the last debate. And I mm. asked my other friends, I go, Dad, I go oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, so I'm going to walk away a winner. Like, I'm yeah, not going to yeah. have any more debates with them. I, I think I won the last one. I'm going mm. away. But it took me a long time to figure out there was even this world of uh, this world of science and faith and science and religion like like it was like it was in academia to have mm -hmm. these discussions it was just i was just having these debates with other um graduate students in physics who were atheists right mm -hmm. and um and so i didn't know the terminology either and i finally figured out what they thought about me right and that's why i couldn't understand or respond to their questions it's called um it's called god of the gaps theory mm. And I don't really know very many Christian scientists who all who have that theory, but I found realize that atheists think that the God of gaps theory is this: that the only reason why you or I believe in God, or the only reason why a scientist believes in God, mm. is because there's unanswered questions of science. Right? Science can't explain this yet, so you need a God. As right. soon as science can explain everything in nature, mm. there's no need for a God. I've never thought that, but it right. took me forever to figure out that's what they were saying. Okay. And all their arguments they were trying to show, let's see, once we find the Higgs particle, which is now found. I, yeah. I still remember one debate with them saying, once we find the top quark, the bottom quark, and the Higgs particle, it's all over with. Now we have found all of them. Physics is done. The world's over with. No need for a God. Right. And that was assuming that I believe in God 
because there are some questions yeah. science hasn't answered yet. I'm like, mm. that isn't why I believe in God. But I didn't really grasp that mm. God of the gaps theory. Yeah, and, and you're old enough to kind of see the pendulum swinging back where scientists, you know, I think the majority were anti-God, but now they're they're kind of scratching their heads going with, with the, uh, you know, with the breaking down of the, the DNA sequence and stuff like that, where they're seeing code and they're kind of going, okay, wait a minute. This, this, this certainly looks like a, a, it's been programmed by, and they might not use the word God, but some form of higher, higher intelligence. Um, are you seeing that or no? So, I mean, I've seen that, um, in my area of astrophysics with big bang theory and so mm. forth, I've seen that. And in genetics, I'm really interested in genetics, by the way. Okay. And, and, um, um, I'm going to talk about more of that later. Cause yeah. I think there's an audience question that involves, uh, some ideas I had about genetics. So I've actually gone to, uh, got some money from the human genome project just to study, mm. you know, I'm a physicist, not a geneticist, but I wanted to get educated on it and bring yeah. some of it back. And I brought what I learned about genetics back into my class, my mm. science and faith classes too. Um, but yes, it's, there's a thing called the anthropic principle it basically means what are all the things in nature that have to be extremely finely tuned right. for us to be here. Mm -hmm. Some of these things, if, like, for example, if if uh, uh, the neutron is slightly, slightly more massive than the proton, you reverse it and no universe, right. essentially. Wow. Um, there's Now, when they first, when people first started coming up with all these different things that you slightly change, like if gravity was slightly weaker, we would have expanded and stars would never form. If, strike, if, if, if it was slightly stronger, the universe would have already collapsed on itself. The mm. universe wouldn't be here. Mm. There was about 29 when this kind of became very popular decades ago. It's like these 29 different principles. Now, what are the odds that these are all this finely tuned? Right. And the odds aren't one in a million, one in a billion, one in a trillion. They're one in a trillion, 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 yeah, trillion. Yeah. They're like ridiculous odds. Yeah. And if you talk to statisticians at some point, it's like we just say there's no chance of right. this happening. And this is where um, infinity comes in. Mm -hmm. So where an atheist comes in, and by the way, there's more than 29 things. There's people have come up with over a hundred. There's yeah. over a hundred different variables in nature, including genetics, stuff like this, that either humans wouldn't be here or even the universe wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. Um, if just one of these goes wrong. So we're super fine tuned. The, the odds that we're here are so astronomical that it's hard to believe we're here. It's, it's, it's much easier to believe in a creator than not to believe in a mm -hmm. creator because the odds are just against it being a fluke. Right. You know, and, um, so, uh, what, what was I? I don't know. You're right the genius. <laughs> anyway, so, so I, uh, um, so, so this principle is basically the, the issue that, um, are, are you, oh, infinity. That's what I was yeah. think. So what you, what you have is, but if you give here, here's what you get. If you give an infinite number of attempts the probability is one we're here. That's the argument right. of the atheistic uh, mm. philosophers of science. Yeah. Or if you give an, if the universe has an infinite number of attempts, the problem is with that, and that I bring up a lot of time with physics mm. is there's no such thing as infinity. Infinity right. is not a real number. It's a construct. It's a concept. It doesn't exist. Mm. But yet, with these multiverse theories out there, there's an infinite number of universes. Right. There, there's an infinite number of Matt Browns out there. Mm. There's an infinite number of. And we all know there can only be one. Yeah. Except for the MMA fighter who knocked out his opponent this weekend. I gotta say, did you guys <laughs> see that Matt Brown one? Yeah, he's been losing. 
So it's been tough. Every time he gets knocked out, everyone texts me like it's me. So sorry. But there is an MMA fighter named Matt Brown. That's great. <laughs> so, um, and the problem is you need infinity um, to get a lot of these theories to work. And you will have, and the, and the people that mostly will say things against infinities are mathematicians, not physicists. It's like the physicists love it. And you'll have some famous mathematicians who get quit quit using infinity so much. Right. You're, you're treating infinity like it really exists. Yeah. And I don't believe there's an infinite number of anything, mm. but infinities are often needed to get over this idea that um, to work it's highly unlikely, to work around it's highly unlikely we're here without a creator. What I say this, to work around the mathematical improbability. Right. So, so what you have to do is throw out math because that's what infinity is, right? So math is gone because we have this number that goes on forever. So you're nodding. Yeah, okay. yeah, so infinity's yeah. not on the real number. Like, that line. was my best shot at brilliance. Yeah, no, so infinity I, I'm is looking not on... for affirmation. Yeah. Everyone in the room is laughing. Okay, so um, I'm kind of jumping around. Sorry, this is, you know, my ADD. I can't, I can't help it. It's a real condition. People don't uh, believe it, but it is. So with that being said, let's dialogue between science and faith, which we've done a little bit. What are the, what are the, the, the different viewpoints? So... Ian Barber came up with a, a great kind of breaking it down in four categories. Some people broke down to more, but I don't think you actually need to. Mm. Um, and I was being interviewed about this when I, after I did, uh, created this course called Science of Faith. I won a Temple to Grant uh, between um, Jeff Kate, who's a theologian at, at Cal Baptist and I, and we put this together. And we got interviewed by the Press Enterprise. Mm. And I remember talking about <clears throat> this to her. And, mm. and the first model is the conflict model, right? And the conflict model basically says that they are in total contrast to each other. One, One's right, one's wrong. Mm. Just it, They can't work together at all. There's just nothing. One's right, one's wrong. Um, and, then, and then you have the independence model. And the one, one, one right, one wrong would be like Carl Sagan, if yeah. you can remember Carl Sagan, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and stuff like that. So um, uh, Richard Dawkins, right. they'd, be, you know, they, they'd be conflict model. Independence model, uh, Stephen Jay Gould, um, who was an atheist, but but he believed in the independence model. He goes, no, 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 they're both valuable. Mm -hmm. Religion, science, both valuable, but they have their own domains. Right. You know, there are questions that there are questions that um, science should answer, not religion, and there's questions that religion should answer, not science. Hmm. Keep them in their separate domains. Now, Dawkins and and Carl Sagan, they would not even agree with that. Wow. They would say, no, 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 no. They're 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 like, if you ask a question that science can't answer. That's a nonsensical question. Mm. That question has no meaning. Mm. You know, that, that's, the, that's like a conflict model person. Mm. Okay. And then dialogue is where people like Francis Collins comes in, the, um, who um, was head of the Human Genome Project and also uh, the head of uh, the National Institutes of Health. And, and, and he's a Christian. And he's a Christian, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. And became a Christian <clears throat> while working on his PhD in biology in grad school. Yeah. And um, uh, so uh, dialogue's more of, okay, and this will lead into uh, one of the questions that a, a, an asker, a student, or excuse me, not a student. Uh, yeah. A, um, We're all students audience, when you're yeah, on a show. Yes. <laughs> an audience member asked, whatever. But um, he says, you know, we have to have dialogue. Mm -hmm. They both can do that, but they have to come together and discuss things. Right. And he's a geneticist, remember. Mm -hmm. So this leads into one, later on one of your uh, uh, audience questions here. But um it's like we have to have this discussion. We have to have a discussion about science can do this. Should we do this? Mm -hmm. You know, so there has to be constant dialogue going on each. And so he believes that 
theologians, you know, like yourself, mm -hmm. you should study science so that you know how to interact, mm -hmm. you know? So if there's something genetics coming on, you should know something about genetics so you know how to help answer questions. Should we do this right. just because we can do this? Right. Is, is a big topic in his area. So that's dialogue. And then integrations like Hugh Ross, um, the founder of uh, Reasons to Believe, former atheist also, an astrophysicist that's now a pastor and runs this, and, and integrations where he just looks in the Bible and finds science in the Bible. Wow. Like he's like, you know, here, and he'll go, here's Big Bang Theory right here wow. you know, in the Bible, and he'll mm -hmm. give you scripture where, where it talks about Big Bang Theory. And mm -hmm. so that's an integrationist. Mm -hmm. I would say most of the people I run across tend to be that are Christians who are scientists tend to be the dialogue model. Okay. You know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we all um, get smarter through dialogue. Um, have you read the Genesis Enigma? Have you read that? I haven't. Yeah. So that was an interesting book. I just finished that maybe last year. And so for those who don't know what that is, it's uh, an evolutionary, um, what would you call them? Creation, uh, not evolutionary creation. That's two different words. An evolutionary scientist looking at Genesis 1 from from the organizational process of evolution, his understanding of how um, the planets, the species, and everything was created, and it's just it was an interesting book. I don't know that I bought everything that he said, but it was interesting. And so his whole point was, how on earth did Genesis one get get so close to what evolutionary people think actually happened? So it's an interesting book. It's a long book. Um, you can uh, if you uh, are tired of listening to the show, you can listen to that for yourself. So so those are the four points. So which one do you ascribe to? I'm going to guess integration. So I'm somewhere between dialogue and integration. Okay. I, I, I've talked to Hugh about this, and I'm saying, okay, you publish stuff all the time saying that, oh, see, this was already in the Bible. Mm -hmm. We discovered this in science. And I go, well, what happens when we find out, and this happens, we made a mistake in science. Right. And now you've equated it to a verse in the Bible, and then we find out that was a mistake. Yeah. Did you just say that verse in there? Yeah. The Bible's a mistake. And I say, and, and so I have those we've we've had discussions about mm. this and i gave him some examples i don't want to give the examples he's not here to defend himself and i've given examples where i just i don't like doing that. i don't like finding science in the bible i right. do i i have more of a two-book worldview of uh see i would say i don't know that even galileo would be an integrationist he would be somewhere between a dialogue yeah and dialogue integrationist in well, other I can words, give you, there, there's I, yeah. two separate books here let's read them both yeah, i can give you an example of where i think that happened and we can go a long time ago uh so genesis 1 1 in the beginning uh uh you know the the uh earth was null and void so that's the translation in most english bibles um, so Genesis 1-1 is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Genesis 1-2 is the Holy Spirit is hovering above the darkness and the earth is null and void. I don't have my Bible in front of me, so if I get that off of just a little bit. Um, but null and void is a translation of the Hebrew word tohu wabohu. And so tohu wabohu, the only other place it's that word is used is in the book of Jeremiah. And so there's this professor, Dr. Selhammer, who says the best way to interpret the Bible is from the Bible. And so in Jeremiah, it means wild. It does not mean null and void, empty, without form. It means wild. Not His argument is the earth was not suitable for man. So when God is acting in creation in Genesis 1, his argument is that the earth already exists, but it is not yet suitable for man. And so Genesis chapter uh, 1 uh, is, is all, the seven days of creation where God is transforming and changing the earth. That's his argument. But the Greeks believed in that the fact that their science, that the earth was null and void. And so that's an example of where Greek science and understanding was interpreted into the Bible. And then now that that's changed, that verse is a problem. 
because they did exactly what you're saying. Their science was proved to be wrong, but now we're stuck with this translation for thousands of years based upon Greek, uh, Greco-Roman scientific understanding of the formation of the, of the world. And so that's a great example where we have to be really, really careful that we don't try to argue for the current understanding of science in the Bible because science is constantly changing. And so, and so Selhammer's arguing is that the Word of God remains the same, and so it should be understood separate from itself. And so his daughter uh, went to MIT, and uh, he's uh, probably—well, he's, he's passed now, but um, he was the leading Hebrew scholar in the world, one, one of the top five, you know, six Hebrew scholars in the world, and his daughter went to MIT. And so he wrote a book called— uh, Genesis Unpacked, or can you guys look that up for me? Unbound, Unbound. there we go. <clears throat> because his daughter kind of lost her faith a little bit at MIT. She's like, Dad, what, what's going on here? And so he he wrote that book. It's out of print. I think I paid $250 for my copy, and it's like a paperback. I think it's available again. Oh, it's a, yeah, okay. So it's available again. So it's a great, great book for those who want to learn. And so that's interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I agree. I think maybe dialogue is better. We just got to be so, so careful because like, Science is constantly growing and understanding and changing because it's it's a pursuit of the unknown and, and technology is changing and driving that. I mean, we're going to see with AI, right, um, the abilities for these computers to work formulations all night without rest. I mean, you, you know, you you probably only sleep like what an hour a night, but um, you know what, I I I crashed yesterday. That's good. <laughs> and then and then uh, I got very, but then I got very little sleep later. Did you, did <laughs> you fall crashed. asleep on your computer? I fell asleep. No, I fell asleep on my bed. I was doing, I was doing laundry and I put my sheets in there. And you know when you, you you're I'm waiting for the sheets to dry, but I just kind of lay down the bed anyway. Yeah. And there's no sheets there. And mm. three and a half hours wake I, up later. It's like yeah, it's three and a half. Like oh yeah. my gosh, just I wouldn't think that a scientist would have an actual <laughs> bed, right? Just an office chair. Yeah. Couch maybe. Bro, our lives are at stake. We need you to be working. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Next one. Here's a here's a big one. The Big Bang. The Big Bang has been a dividing point for a long time. Uh, Dr. Buchholz, you're an astrophysicist. I love saying that. Uh, what is Matt Brown? Not an astrophysicist. Um, what are the misconceptions? But on... you are a student of an astrophysicist. Yes. Oh, man, you are my favorite. What are the misconceptions of what it is and how, and how uh, has it or was it interpreted by scientists? So <clears throat> the interesting thing is that I would say the general public, for the most part, uh, and maybe even pastors around the world have have maybe gotten the uh, this kind of backwards. Here's okay. here's what most of my students think. Let me say right. what it what they think, and it isn't. We're in this room, and I have a firecracker, right? Yeah. And I light the firecracker, and it and it and it blows up, and pieces fly through the room, and they're flying through everywhere, right? Right. And um and a lot of people don't like that and go, oh God, just the what what there's and I've heard statements from different. Uh, ministers and so forth, like what? No need for God. Just this explosion and particles just fly through the universe. That is actually not Big Bang theory. Okay, Big Bang theory is there was no universe, mm. there was no space, there was no time, and the bang, which in science terms you'll say the t equals zero event, the beginning mm. of time, was the beginning of space and time. Mm. So space and time was created in an instant, like boom. There was no space and time, wow. and now it's here. And instead of thinking of galaxies as flying through space, they're being drugged by space. What's expanding is space and time itself hmm. and pulling the galaxies apart. So I brought my whiteboard if you want. Okay. Yeah. yeah. If you want me to draw. Yes. Uh, well, our listeners in the car are going to struggle, but listeners <clears> in the car are gonna <throat> I will oh. be enlightened. I don't know if you can see this or. All right. 
Okay. So I'm just going to kind of draw a balloon here and put dots on a balloon. Okay. Okay. So here, here's dots on a balloon. All right. And, um, oh, there's, so there's dots on a balloon. Are we in? All right. So what happens is here's big bang theory. So later on, if you keep blowing that balloon up, it's expanding. Right. You think of the surface of the balloon as space time. I know that's only two dimensions, Yeah. But, you know, but, and space times four dimensions, three spatial plus one time. But so I can't draw all four dimensions. Mm. Right. And, and I can't even visualize four dimensions. Okay. You know, unless you put something in my T, you know, yeah. I could be able to do we it. Did, we did actually. Okay. Well, maybe I can visualize it now. All right. So as, um, so as this expands, right. well, what's going to happen to those dots? They're going to get pulled. They're going to get pulled apart. They get pulled further and further apart, and you're going to get these dots can be further apart. So it doesn't make a difference. So the idea is that the balloon surface, the balloon surface is space time, Mm -hmm. and these dots are like galaxies. Okay. And as you blow the balloon up, you're pulling the galaxies apart. All right. They're being pulled apart. So the galaxies aren't flying through space. They're being pulled by space time. Mm. And so, and so space just keeps expanding. Space time just keeps expanding, expanding, expanding. Now, let's say this is our galaxy. There's the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. Well, all these dots are moving away from you, right? Well, let's say you lived in this galaxy. Still, all the dots are moving away from you. There is no center to the universe. Okay. You would say, well, but yes, because the center is in the middle of the balloon. Well, the balloon's not part of the universe. Oh. So in Big Bang Theory, there's no center of the universe. No matter where you live, er, over, if you look over great enough distances, <laughs> everything's going to be moving away from you. Mm. So no matter where you go, everything's being pulled away, right? So now the idea is, if you get this expansion rate, and this is what Hubble, the Hubble Space Telescope's named after, one of the things he's famous for is getting this expansion rate and plotting a graph to get this expansion rate. If you take this expansion rate and you see how big it is today, right. you can run the movie backwards to see when it was a singular point and there was no space and time. In other words, if you see something, if you see something, it's like this, if... If something's this big today, right, it was here, then it was here, then yeah. it was here, then it was uh-huh. here, right, and you can measure the expansion rate, then you should be able to run the movie backwards and yeah. see when it started. Mm-hmm. So when you hear people say that the um, universe is 13.8 billion years old, that's what we're doing. It's It literally comes from, mm. from the Hubble graph, which measures this rate of expansion, mm-hmm. assuming it's approximately the same throughout time. That's an approximation. Um, you run it out like this, and you just run the movie backwards and go, Oop, Yep. when there was nothing. Mm. And so the bang is the creation of it. So when it first came out, by the way, the person that pointed, the, uh, speaking of su- this supposed war between science and faith, right. the person that first <clears throat> came up with this um, was a priest, a Belgian priest. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, Lamatre. And, and, he, and he came up, his theory was this he came up with Big Bang Theory. Now, he didn't have the name Big Bang Theory, okay. but he came up with his idea that there should have been no space and time, just a point, whatever a point is. And in mathematics, we don't define what a point is. Okay. Don't you know what it is? Well, I rarely have a point, so yeah. <laughs> therefore I'm a mathematician. There you go. And so and so, all of a sudden, bang, right. this expanded. And so, it, so the issue was, and so a lot of people thought that, oh, this Big Bang Theory, what need is there for God? Well, the answer was it was more the theistic people mm that fell in line with liking Big Bang Theory in the beginning than the atheistic people, because it's implying a beginning, a mm. beginning to the universe. Most people, including Einstein, and uh, uh, wanted the universe to always have been here. Mm. They want the universe always to have been here. They don't want a beginning. Mm. 
And the person who coined the term Big Bang Theory was Fred Hoyle. Fred Fred Hoyle was an astrophysicist um, that did not believe in the Big Bang Theory. Mm. And so Lemaitre came up with this idea in the late 20s. And by like, I think it was in 1949 on on a BBC show, on a radio show, um, that uh, Fred Hoyle comes up with, um, um, uh, comes up and just says the word Big Bang. And he said it despairingly or just, Guardingly, he goes this this big bang, right? Right, and and it caught on, mm. and he was actually kind of making fun of it because yeah. he didn't believe it. He believed in steady state theory, which is the universe has always been here, mm-hmm. pretty much the way it looks today. Da, right. da, da. He did not want a beginning to time. Mm. Now, the thing I really appreciate about Fred Hoyle is that he said it's that he did, and and it's hard to it's hard to get a lot of people to agree with this, but he actually did. Mm. Um, openly say one of the major reasons why I don't like Big Bang Theory is because I'm an atheist. Mm. He said, because if you can convince me there was a bang, then I would have to believe that that's a creation event. He admitted that's a creation event. I would have to believe in a creator then. Mm -hmm. And since I'm an atheist, I don't believe this. So to his dying days, he still was writing books called Semi-Steady State Theory. And this was long after people gave up on uh, on a steady state theory. Mm. They gave up on this and they basically, but even Hawkins go more modern day with Hawkins who just passed away a couple of years ago. Hawking himself did occasionally say, I don't like big bang theory. And, mm. and, and you think, well, Hawking didn't like big bang theory. He didn't, you know? Mm. Um, and while you can attribute some of his comments, he was a little careful. He was more careful and uh, he was not as open as Fred Hoyle was about, I'm an atheist, Big Bang Theory's got to be wrong, right. because if it were right, there's a God. You know, he right. was more like that. Hawking wasn't quite as open as that, but he did make statements like, you know, if if I can remove the bang from Big Bang, what need is there for a God? Mm-hmm. You know, so he mm-hmm. was, he was like, he wanted to move that. So the way he, he, so he worked on using imaginary time. So he added an imaginary time direction, mm-hmm. uh, a dimension, and tried to get rid of the bang. Mm. Now, why would you do that? Mm. Why would you try to get it? What, what's your motive? And I argue, it was, his, it was my argument is, and he's not here to defend himself, so I'm sorry about that, but my it's his worldview. His mm. worldview is, I got to do something to get rid of God, yeah. to, get, to, to have it so that people quit interpreting this bang as a creator. Mm. Do you think that, and you're a scientist, so you can't speak for everyone, do you think that there's a, an intellectual arrogance and they can't see that that in some way they're making they're making themselves be God. Do you think that do you think that that's true at all? Um, I mean, why 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 this intense need for there not to be something smarter than them that's organizing the universe? So, I mean, I know I, this is not I in think, the questions. No, I know what what I think is that um, I'm one of a few people that think your worldview comes before your philosophies. Okay, that you basically build a worldview. And then when you philosophy about things, whether it's science or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and by the way, prior to about the 17th century, the, the words science and scientist didn't exist. Scientist okay. is, is a newer, it used to be philosopher of nature. Oh, like Newton was a philosopher of nature. People were philosophers of nature. Okay. okay? Mm. So philosophy was very heavily tied um, to it. And, um, but I think worldview comes first. I, you know, I think as soon as you come out of the womb, mom is God kind of thing. Right. Like, ah, oh, you know, and you've got yeah. this, you know. And so I think you start to develop right away these certain beliefs, right? And so I often wonder, how do you take someone who's an atheist as an adult 
and convince them to change the worldview mm -hmm. because you got to change your worldview. Right. Mm -hmm. You may not even have to change your philosophy of how you do things or study things or mm -hmm. study science, but you got to change your worldview. Yeah. So it's interesting. So when Jesus, you know, in our English Bibles, when you see the word repent, the Greek word is metaneo, which is a, which is a word that means the total change of one's thought. So it's, 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 a, it's a change of the way that you think and see the world and experience it around you. But that's what leads to salvation. So I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And so what I would say is, I think we can do our best to argue, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit that can change a person. And so what we need to do is not be jerks, be understanding, be... Um, you, you know who Dallas Willard was? Yes. So he was a professor at USC right. uh, in philosophy. The, you know, the entire department's atheist, anti-Christian. And I, I asked him, I said how do you exist in such an anti-Christian environment? And he said, I'm excellent at what I do. Yeah. And so here's the thing is the world doesn't care what you believe as long as you're excellent at what you do. And he said, I work hard to be an excellent philosopher. And so there's a place for me here. And so that's what I would say to everybody out there that's so overwhelmed with our worldview, losing, because it's losing, yeah. is be excellent at what you do, have integrity, be sharp, work hard, earn the respect of your peers. And, um, and I think that, you know, um, you know, I mean, w when we were, we're in this series called she, her. And so, um, I think we'll be done with this by the time the show airs. But my, my favorite thing is when we talked about the women who travel with Jesus, um, one of the women, uh, Joanna was the household manager of, of Herod. She was an influential woman. Uh, she did. And so what did Jesus, Jesus, because by definition, he was excellent at what he did. He drew Nicodemus. He drew Joseph of Arimathea. He drew uh, Joanna, the household manager of Herod. People saw in him a moral, intellectual, uh, and emotional excellence that was so appealing, they were willing to work around that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? Those are the challenging teachings. He, his excellence was was able to attract people beyond that. And I'm not saying you're Jesus or I'm Jesus, but I'm saying Jesus is glorified when we're excellent at what we do. And what I've seen in the Christian world oftentimes is a laziness that's perpetuated by, well, God's in charge. And I, I say this all the time to Christians who say that to me. I say, well, what does he put you in charge of? You know, um, one of my favorite verses in the Psalms is, is the heavens of the Lord and the earth has been given to us. I mean, okay. So life is what, I mean, let me give you the, the dumbed down version. Life is what you make it. So uh, my friend Tim, Tabor, Tim Tiberlake says this, that we are born looking like our parents, we die looking like our decisions. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a powerful, uh, and I'm only going to quote him once, and from now on, I'm going to say, I've always said. So, uh, no, I mean, he, every time he says that, it's so profound, but um, we, need to, we, need, we need to have a change because our worldview is, is so often wrong. And, and the best way to, you know, like I love Melody's, did you get to hear Melody's sermon this weekend? Yes. From Mother's Day? Yeah, yeah. I think the most profound point is when she talked about how her father-in-law came to Christ, his wife led him to Christ. He didn't want a pastor. He didn't want a priest. Yeah, yeah. He wanted his wife because she had lived a life of moral excellence. And when he was faced with eternity, he knew that she was the real deal and she led him to faith in Christ. And so, so what I would say is, you know, we have so many teachers that are so worried about, you know, all this junk that they don't believe in that they have to teach. And I don't mean professors. I mean, it, it's probably at your level, but it's more at the, you know, there's more control over academia at the lower levels than there is. I mean, you guys are supposed to be free to to do things. And I'm not saying there isn't pressure in, in, in the, um, the collegiate ranks, but you know, what do I do? It's be excellent at your craft, be the best teacher 
And so, and then in that, you know, that makes people curious, you know, why are you the way that you are? And, 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 and you can draw people because at the end of the day, we're not going to save the world, but we can save individual people in the world. And that's what I'm trying to do is, is do that. So that's fantastic. All right. Last question. Uh, how do scientists know what they know? I don't even know what this question means. How is, how is it the same or different than theologians, you know, axioms, postulates, and faith? What, how do they, I mean, cause, cause you said science is always changing. So how, so how do you know? So Euclid back in 300 BC wrote the books called elements, 13 books called elements. Yeah. And if you know how some people say, well, if it, what book should I read? If you had a yeah. top 10 list other than the Bible, I mean, Bible be number one, maybe Euclid's really? element first. Okay, I've never two. read it. All right. And, um, and at first you can be like, what, what, what? And the point, what he did is something that I evidently, I don't think can be done again. He basically said, you know, this is the way we think there's mm. no other way. Mm. And, and this is now 2,300 years ago and people are going like, yeah, that's the way we think. Wow. Okay. And so the idea is, so he set up these axioms. Axioms are statements that you believe to be true, self-evident, right? You've heard that word before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have no proof for them. Yeah. Okay. And you have to do that. Right. You have to come up with statements. Okay. Postulate, postulate, um, physicists, we like to use the word postulate because if it's a statement you believe to be true, but you can't prove it. Right and it has to do with nature, then we, I kind of like to use postulates. Right. Mathematicians kind of interchange those. I like to keep them separate. So they're both things you believe to be true that can't prove. Like there's, there's like five major postulates of quantum mechanics. So think about quantum mechanics is dominating, right? Quantum computers and everything. Right. And yet there's five things we know. What we say, hey, we're never going to be able to prove this. We mm -hmm. just believe them to be true. Okay. Okay. So you have to set up things, but then you have things called like undefined terms. Mm -hmm. You have to have undefined terms. Like in math, the word point, we talked about, there's no definition for point. Mm. There's no definition for line. There's no definition for set. Mm. So we have these different things. The reason why is if you define point, you have to define it in terms of another word. Right. And then you have to find that word in terms of another word. And yet every, every language is circular. You get back to point again. Mm -hmm. you know, if you're trying to define set, the word set, S-E-T, and you go, well, it's a collection of, well, I'll define the word collection. Well, a collection's a group yeah. of, and I'll define group. Well, a group's like, uh, well, well, a group's a set of, uh, oh, and then all of a sudden you're back to set. Right. So you have to have places, both things you believe to be true about the universe, right. postulates, mm -hmm. and words you aren't going to define. Mm -hmm. And then you go from there. So an axiom or postulates, something you believe to be true about nature. Well, how would you define faith? Wow. Faith's the same thing. Yeah. In, in theological terms, you, you, you have faith that this is true, or that you have faith that God exists. You have faith that, in fact, if I were to, I would make God an undefined term, mm -hmm. like, because any definition of God falls short. Right, amen. So I'm going to make God an undefined term. So when someone asks me, well, who is God? I go, um, but it does, just because, the words point and line and set aren't defined in mathematics. Mm. They still get understanding in mm. the context they're used. Mm -hmm. So they're still useful. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, so there's these 10 major postulates or uh, five axioms, five postulates, the way he called them, that uh, the 10th one that, that um, Euclid set up people for just centuries and centuries tried to prove it wasn't okay. a postulate. And the way you do that is if you can take any previous postulates mm. and do a theorem to prove this postulate, it wasn't a postulate because you just proved it. Yeah. But you can never get down to zero. Right. 
So what you try to do is you try to find, you scientists try to find the fewest number of things that we say we aren't going to prove and prove everything else in terms of that. Okay. And so, and so faith, faith and axioms are essentially the same thing. Yeah. Have you ever had a conflict between what you know as a scientist and your faith in God? Has there ever been a conflict for you? I know that's not on the list. I just yeah no um yeah so and and my, feel free to answer whatever you want to answer yeah, my, or, or not. My my real I um there's things in the Old Testament that bother me. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> I hate reading this. And you shall die. Yeah yeah yeah. I just I hate reading that stuff. Mm. You know and mm. uh, um I, I sat down with a, a a Jewish student one time. We wanted to have lunch. We sat down. We talked about it and everything. And I, I still remember him saying to me, he goes, you, you Christians lighten God up. You make God yeah. l- more loving and happy. You mm-hmm. just lightened him up, yeah. you know? And I kind of understand what yeah. he's saying, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder how I would view the Testament if, if I only believe in the Old Testament, not the New mm-hmm. Testament, you know? I mean, you know, I have to read both or I, I have, or I'm like, really? That's just so horrible. Right. You know, things seem so horrible. So many things in mm-hmm. the Old Testament. Seem so I struggle with Old Testament things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. That's a whole nother show where we can talk yeah, about yeah. the Old Testament. Um, all right, man. So um, thank you so much for being on the show. We're going to do some audience questions, but I just, if there's anybody out there, any of our listeners uh, that in your, anywhere near Hunter Park, because we're going to do your class in Hunter Park, right? Yeah. So the Hunter Park campus is our largest campus in Riverside, California. And so I don't think there's going to be an online option. So I apologize to our listeners because we have listeners from literally all over the world that listen. So thank you for your faithfulness. But he's going to be teaching a class uh, exploring, what would you call it, science and faith? Science and faith. Science and faith. So this is something you're curious about. This is a place where you have questions. Uh, If you just want to connect with people at the Hunter Park campus, this is a great place to start. We're going to announce this in the show notes. It starts June 12th. This show is going to air June 1st. How long do you think the class is going to go for? How many weeks are you guys going to go? So I'm just figuring, you know, we'll try like, six or seven weeks. I've written kind of a booklet. We maybe can go off that about seven chapters. And so we can kind of just kind of go over that and kind of, uh, I don't want to say the word assignments. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But I mean, this this, this is what we're going to talk about. Is this a safe place for somebody who has real questions? Yeah. So I, it needs to be a safe place. It absolutely has to be a safe place. Um, uh, and so let me explain what yeah, I mean yeah. by that is at the end, you can come, you can come to this class and not agree with what we believe or think at Sandals Church and you will be loved, accepted, and we'll do the best that we can to answer your question. So that, that's what I mean by safe. Now, if you come and you're a total jerk or you protest or something, that's a, that's a different issue is we, we don't want you to be an obstructionist to learning, but if you want to be a participant, man, yeah. uh, you know, I believe that, uh, your questions, just like on this show, your questions make the show better, I think tough questions will make yeah, the yeah. class better. So it's going to start June 12th at Hunter Park. I would encourage you to be a part of that. There will not be childcare. So please don't ask the, our kids ministry will murder me because we are struggling getting people to come back and work with kids. Once again, uh, this last weekend we had mother's day and there must've been just uh, thousands upon thousands of children running around who were all jacked up because mama didn't have to make breakfast. So they came with donuts and soda pop and, uh, Basically, we had 2,000 crackheads, um, zero to uh, sixth grade this weekend, and hopefully not all of our teachers didn't quit. Man, I, when I was a, uh, a soccer coach, man, the parents used to show up and their kid with a donut and a big gulp 
I'm like, what, what are we doing? Why are you handing your child off to me with, you know, this horrible methamphetamine that you've just given your child? All right. So audience questions, are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So I did not come up with these questions. These are our audience members and they are all brilliant because they follow the show. They make the show better. So this comes from Instagram. Uh, My question is around ethics. Just because we can, does that mean we should? Man, that is a great question. For example, uh, creating life such as in the case of infertility treatments or actions like modifying or customizing genes to remove undesirable traits or conditions. Would love some insight on this topic, and I am guessing this has no name behind it. You couldn't find the name. So that may mean the staff made this up just to watch me squirm. Uh, let's let's just start off before we get into the specifics. Let's just talk about just because we can, does that mean that we should? I think that's what Elon Musk is sounding the alarm on. I mean, he is saying AI is a problem, that this is going to create uh, unwanted consequences. And so here's the thing is, I, I think the world, you know, may, people may not like his politics, but they do appreciate his brilliance. And so when you have one of the most brilliant people saying, this is a problem, um, you know, and so, you know, we, we were talking about the end times, uh, was it two episodes ago? And, and they said, what was your philosophy on the end time? And I said, every pastor who's ever answered this question has been wrong in the history of church. Anyone, so, and then I gave my two cents. And so my two <laughs> cents is that, you know, the number 666, 666 could be John's interpretation of coding. So I, I think it would be interesting that God created us in his image, and then we create AI in our image, but it reflects our brokenness and our fallenness, and it kills us all. And so, you know, the abomination of desolation in Revelation could be some hybrid, uh, you know, half-human, altered-human, AI version of human. I mean, because John doesn't have a category for that. So that's my two cents. Everybody's sleep tight. I know I've scared everyone to death. But I think that's a great example where someone who, I don't think Elon Musk is a Christian, but he's saying. We need to pump the brakes. Just because we can doesn't mean that we should. And Einstein shared some of those concerns with the nuclear bomb, right? He was like, this is power that we can't control. Um, And we all have to live with this uh, scary tension now because there's a guy named Putin that has a couple of these. I think he has two or three of these bombs, maybe 10,000. But who's counting? You know, what what do you think about that? I mean, where is the the moral brakes for scientists? Well, see, this is where, uh, and we talked about Francis Collins earlier. Uh, so Francis Collins, who um, is on the dialogue model issue, and he says, um, and I've met him a few times. We're both we're both fellows of ASA, which is the American Scientific mm-hmm. Affiliation. It's a group of of scientists uh, who are Christians in North America, and um, and he has said, I've heard him say. Uh, scientists are the last people should be making these ethical decisions. Okay. So, um, and, and just remind you, so he, he's the, he was the director of the human genome project. Right. Right. And then he became, uh, the, the director of the national institutes of health under three administrations. Mm-hmm. No one's even done it under two. So oh. he's very, very popular person. He, mm-hmm. uh, he was, it's a presidential appointment. He got appointed by Obama. Then he got appointed by Trump. Then he got appointed by biden and wow. then he and then he retired uh december this okay. last year so um but he says we should be the last people making these decisions yeah. mm-hmm. um and and i'll give you a good example i i for years <laughs> would tell my students man it's a good thing i'm a christian mm. because i have some brilliant genetic experiments i would like to yeah, do yeah, yeah. you know yeah. and i said i said if we really want to learn 
um, how much nature and how much nurture is, how much is, how much yeah. of who you are is genetics and how much is nurturing your environment you're in. It's called nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. What we really should be doing is separating all twins at birth hmm. in the United States. Take, get all twins mm -hmm. and just separate them birth and don't even let, don't even let the kids know that they have a twin and mm -hmm. just separate them. And that would make a great experiment. Okay. That would make a fantastic experiment. We really would learn a lot. Okay, so I, I was I was really nervous with where you're going with yeah. that, but I think so, that's okay. So, I thought you were going to say like put one in a cell or something. Yeah. I was like, man, you, maybe I need to talk to Gail yeah. Baptist. You yeah. may have lost it. No, that was good. So so, but here's here's the funny thing. So I would tell this story for years. My students it goes, it, it go, but of course that's unethical, right? Right, right. But it's unethical. But but if I weren't a Christian, I'd be like, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. I want to do this. Right. Um, what's the consequence? Well, you know, there's no life after death. Who cares? You know, da da da. This is good science, right? It ends up. We find out a few years ago, this has been done. Oh, wow. And you should see this documentary called Three Identical Strangers. Wow. Okay, and I'm you got it. to see Three Identical Strangers. And it was about these triplets that were separated at birth by scientists at the orphanage. They, they were working with, I believe it was in New York, an orphanage in New York. Okay. And they were giving adoptions without telling telling people to adopt them. They would tell them this is just one child. Wow. This is just one child. And they split them up. And by the time they were 19, they found each other. Wow. They just came across each other. And um, and and they and then the, and the parents start saying, like, I wonder, they they thought scientists followed them throughout their lives, okay. would come and do visits, but they but they thought it was like um part of the adoption thing. We need to make sure the child's still being right, taken. Right. They would ask all these questions. They were scientists showing up mm. trying to see, you know, if we put this person in this environment or this person in this environment, this and they all have the same genes, but we put them in this environment, right. this environment, this environment. How are they different? And it was a scientific project, and it really was done. And wow. I, and when I found out that actually happened, yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, there are mad scientists out there. Yes, yeah. And absolutely. evidently, it wasn't just these three; it was an ongoing thing. And these individuals, only two of the brothers are alive now. One committed uh, suicide. Uh, Don't mean to ruin the yeah. the documentary for you. But evidently, it was done several times through this particular. Oh, yeah, that's terrible. Thanks for sharing. Um, so here's what I would say is, is uh, I think for for when I was growing up and coming up, you know, and, and it's, 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 it's one of the reasons I'm no, I no longer consider myself liberal. I, I, I would consider myself liberal for very years. But um, my liberal friends would say, keep your conscience and your morals out of the voting booth. And I was like... You know, and, and what I realized is, no, that's 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 part of how as Christians we're salt and light. Is we need to have a voice. We I don't think we need to be in control. The church historically has not done real well <laughs> when we're in charge. Uh, and Jesus never called us to be in charge, but He does call us to be the salt and light. And so we do need to speak into uh, conscience. And so even if you know, in, in, in the abortion, I, I think debate until Jesus comes and the legality of it is going to sway with each generation. I think the church always needs to consistently speak not to the law, but to the moral truth of what a child is. And that's that's where I, I say, I think we speak into that, you know, just because you can into life, what the church says is, should you? And that's where I think our job is to speak into that. And, um, you know, there's going to be some people, you know, well, you know, you want me to speak on the legality, and what I want to speak to as salt and light is the morality. And that's where I think the church, we can lose sight. I think we actually lose some of our moral integrity when we try to control. You know, we, when we try to control society, I think that we need to be seen as uh, a place where people can come for for moral truth and guidance, because science does not provide it. So this this question, such as on infertility treatments, here here's what I've done, because I've had people... 
who come to me and ask this very question. And what I say is, you have the Holy Spirit inside you. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm going to speak to you like they were going to end a life, but but infertility actually creates another challenge, which is the creation of life. And so, what do you do with um, eggs that are frozen that are 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 you know have been what do they call it when they put the egg and the sperm together? Fertilized. Fertilized thank you. Uh, what do, what do you do with you know, these fertilized eggs, I mean, it creates a huge problem. And I've watched families go through that because, you know, they might get 10 fertilized eggs or 12 fertilized eggs. And by the grace of God, the first time it worked, or they have kids, but what do you do with that? And so that's the problem is oftentimes science creates problems. You know, here's another huge problem is science can save the life of a child that otherwise would have died at birth. And then you have all of these struggles and challenges. And, you know, I, I've seen it with families. Um, science can keep a family member after an accident alive. What kind of life is it? Well, without science, we wouldn't face that dilemma. And so, um, you know, what I try to guide families, because nobody at the shock of an accident, nobody wants to lose a family member. But it may no longer, outside of a miracle of God, be the family member that you want alive because they've been destroyed either through, you know, um, something to the brain or in that effect. And, and that is so heart-wrenching because science can keep people alive that under normal, normal circumstances would have and should have died. So um, it, it's a huge, huge problem medically, scientifically, you know, I think ethically. And we, and we all have to at some point say, okay, when is it enough? Because, you know, your desire for a child can become God. Like that can become the thing that, you know, you know, I think it's okay to want children, but to say, I can't live and not be a mom or I can't live and not be a dad because then you're going to make decisions and choices, you know, um, and I'm not saying this for any of our listeners, but have led people historically to snatching kids at hospitals and, um, um, you know, parks and stuff like that. I mean, when you can't live without that, you, you do crazy things. And so um, we have to be very, very careful. And this is why I would say we need good community that sees us, loves us. And I think it's human nature to say, I can't live without. It, it's, it's human nature to not be grateful for what we have and to focus and be mad at God for what we don't. And that makes you uh, a very difficult person to be around. So we'd love some insight on this topic. Um, me too. So as, as for the modifying, customizing genes and remove undesirable traits and conditions, man, that is just that is just a huge issue that is going to have to be debated and fought out in philosophy classes. And that's where, so we've talked about science. We've talked about faith. That's a whole nother area of philosophy that's really kind of fallen silent. It's, they need to argue rigorously for a philosophy you know, of this. It's why I love the Enneagram and our listeners are rolling their eyes, but the Enneagram comes from us from three sources, a philosopher, a psychiatrist, and Pontius, uh, uh, um, who is a theologian. So it's why I think the Enneagram works so well, because it addresses a philosophy of life I want to change. It addresses sin and righteousness because it's Christian. And then it addresses psychology because it's hard to change. You know, I was listening to this one psychiatrist. He said, after 35, 95% of your life is autopilot. That is terrifying. And he said, and I can prove it to you, have you ever driven home and not re and forgotten how you got there for a certain amount of time? <laughs> like your body is just doing what it does and you're not even thinking about it or a part of it. And um, so, and that's even before the Tesla. All right, you got any thoughts on that? Do you want to jump into that or do you want to, because you could get fired if you give your opinion. I'm not saying by me, well, but by your colleagues. No, but I mean, I... <laughs> 
I just I just think that this is exactly well, it is exactly precisely what what um, uh, Collins was saying that you know these type of decisions. He actually says, I mean, you can have dialogue, mm-hmm. but it should. I mean, it shouldn't be the scientists making the final call. Yeah, it's got to be. And and he does believe all religions need to get involved mm-hmm. and say this is what I believe is mm-hmm. ethical or not ethical. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't leave. Yeah. You can't leave it up to the scientists. Well, and I think a great example of that. And I told you I wouldn't bring up COVID, um, but you know, with the elevation of Dr. Fauci, who is looking at everything from a scientific per, uh, perspective, we needed our elected officials to make decisions. And so I think that Dr. Fauci's opinion should have been a part of that. But ultimately, you know, um, I was talking with uh, um, an elementary school teacher who just talked about the level of kids who can't read write or speak because the schools were shut down and then mask mandates and they're realizing how important reading lips is in understanding language. Mm. So it's not just for a young child. It's not just hearing language. It's watching language. And so these kids now are two years. Think about this, two formative years behind because we were concerned about their medical safety, which I'm not saying shouldn't have been considered but we needed everyone around the table to say, okay, th- there are consequences that don't just involve death. It, it involves, you know, the delay of, and, and particularly the delay of children who were already going to struggle, you know, because upper middle income parents with time who spend time with their kids, right? I'm going to make my kid do his homework. Kids who don't have those parents lost two and a half years. Um, so, so I think that's a great example where science needs to speak. You know, and so, you know, here's the percentage of people we think are going to die that may or may not be altered by closing schools, you know, and there was, you know, most of the world said close. I think, was it Sweden? Sweden's the one place where they said, keep it open, Um, you know, and and it was a difficult decision. But, but, you know, I think we had a lot of people who said, let the scientists make the decisions. And then there were, you know, more conservatives who were like, let me make the decision. But I mean, that's what government elected officials are supposed to do is take counsel. And that's the, I would say that's the most difficult job I have is we have an incredible leadership team. They don't always agree. I receive all their counsel. Uh, My wife and I actually had an interesting conversation about this. She was saying, I don't, you know, you didn't listen to me. And and what I said to her is, no, I listened to you. I made a different decision. Um, And that's, man, so that's weird, right? So we have husband, wife, and then we have pastor relationship. And so, you know, she gave me some counsel in terms of pastoring and, and, and to be fair, she has a good record of being right, but I, I still have to make the decision. I can't just go with counsel. You have to receive counsel and then make the best decision you can as a leader. Because I mean, I have 220 employees who count on me for a paycheck and that weighs on me. I mean, that weighs on me. And, and, uh, people always say, well, it's up to God. And I said, well, I would love for him to, uh, auto pay you directly. <laughs> but as it is right now, I have to fundraise, make these decisions so that I can pay you. And, and I got to make the best decision I can. So I think these are tough issues, uh, Instagram anonymous. Um, and I thank you for your question. All right. Last question. You ready for Ashley? She said so often, mm, man, I hope I don't do this. So often in the message and in the debrief, Pastor Matt discusses environmentalists and the environment. I have just completed my master's in environmental science. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, Appreciate you. And I do appreciate, actually, environmental science. I'm not sure I'm misunderstanding Pastor Matt. 
probably so because I am so terrible at communication, but sometimes I feel like I'm doing something wrong by studying the environment. I don't worship Mother Earth or anything. Is it possible to believe in God and want to protect the environment? I would say, of course, it's possible. What do you say? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's even mandated. Yeah. I think we're, we're, he gave us this to take care of. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say this, Ashley, I'm sorry for doing that. What, what, what the part of environmental science I don't like is the cult-like worship of the earth. That's where I don't like, uh, the reference to mother earth. And, and I understand, you know, when we, when we utilize the language mother for some things, we don't always mean it literally, but you know, mother earth is not in charge. Um, you know, and I, but I do think we need to care about it. Plastics are, are a huge deal. Uh, pollution is a huge problem. I don't know about you, but I want clean air. I want clean water. I think the myth is that religious people don't want those things. Um, I think the issue is with, um, what would you call it? Global warming. You know, the, um, again, it's, you know, we don't want the environmentalists making the decisions for, um, the water we drink, how we drive, what we drive. Um, you know, I mean, there's a big push, as you know, in California for, uh, electric, all electric vehicles, but is it 2035? Okay. Let me just, every environment, that's not going to happen. And let me tell you why. So they just had a town in I, somewhere in Illinois where they said, we're going to switch all of our, um, our city trucks to uh, batteries that those trucks will require more electricity than the entire town already. And so the, the city council was like, this, this is not possible. Um, and so in California, we have huge issues because we don't like nuclear energy. Um, so we don't have the ability to, you know, uh, you know, what, what, remember last summer when it was like 110, Governor Newsom asked people with electric vehicles to stop driving? Well, and let me tell you why that is, because there's not enough energy to go around. And so the state population, how long have you been in California? Uh, since mid-80s. Yeah, so it's yeah. doubled in population since you've yeah. been here. We have one existing nuclear power plant left. I think when you got here, we would have had nine. We have one. So... Like we're not producing power, and so when you go and you you plug your electric car in, just ask your local energy supplier where that energy has come from. Most likely, it's coming from fuel. <laughs> so it's just it's just it's just hilarious. Is we 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 need to uh, figure something out, and wind and solar are not going to get it done. Um, and so I, I think that we need to. You know, I talked with. Uh, oh my gosh, I went and met with a congressman, and he's like, he said, "What are the two biggest issues facing California?" And I said, "A, a lack of energy and water." And this is a congressman. He looked at he he looked at me like I said cheese, like like he because because w- w- on the news right it's racial issues it's uh, the LGBTQ plus and here's what I told him I said here's what everybody needs whether they're gay or straight black or white young or old they need clean water and uh, we need power because it's hot here and he just he just well I hadn't considered that and it's like because you don't actually want to deal with things that we need you to deal with so do we need clean energy absolutely do we need clean water yes I mean I'm a surfer I don't want to grow a third nipple the next time I go out surfing you know um I, I don't want that to happen you know and all the runoff goes into the ocean I know that I I don't want a gross ocean but at the same time we have to go to work we have to be able to get around uh, people have to have jobs and jobs take energy and um so that's a big challenge. Do you have any thoughts on that? I just pontificated. So in my, um, uh, when I teach my astronomy classes, um, we, I, and I actually I've done some research on this too, but um, I teach something about, you know, climate change, which right. is the new world instead of global warming, uh, has always been happening before we hear it will happen if yeah. we 
kill ourselves off. It'll still happen for astronomical reasons. Mm -hmm. So we actually show, I mean, think about ice ages. Ice ages come and go, right. come and go. The world heats up and it cools down. And there's three astronomical things that are happening in the elliptical path of the earth around the sun the tilt of the earth is changing and the earth is processing and all okay, these three you gotta define processing i know what it means but you got wobbling. wobbling it's yeah. wobbling right so, so, got, so you gotta you gotta you gotta dumb it down so, a little bit. so you got it so you have so you have uh the the elliptical path of the earth actually right. i can do this again on here if you want yeah so, he's going to the chalkboard going to the board again all right so can you see it yep. yeah. all right so if if we make the sun if we put the the sun here 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 is the elliptical path of the earth i'm i'm exaggerating how quickly it's happening but over about a 100,000 year period it's doing this it's changing its shape hmm. so that will change the temperature right so spending sometimes further out sometimes close that'll change the temperature the tilt of the earth if you know we say the earth is tilted 23 and a half degrees it tilts anywhere from like 21 to 25. It goes up and down. Mm. The tilt changes. That will make summers hotter, winters colder, and stuff like that. Mm. And then you all, and then you have the precession. The is press that will change when the season starts. So like that. The wobbling. And, yes, the wobbling. And that's here. why the summer equinoxes and the spring equinox. Sorry, summer solstice, winter solstice, spring and fall. They change. Those dates change. They're not fixed. Well, the funny thing is, look at that. We I know humans, some science. We humans have decided we don't want them to change, so we do skip seconds and stuff like that. Okay, yeah. In 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 reality, about thirteen thousand years from now, um, June and July, August should be cold, and November, December, January should be hot. Mm. But we're going to change the calendar so that isn't the case. Okay. Um, <laughs> but the, so we are. We're changing the yeah. calendar. So you could. It's possible you lost a cell phone call because. Because the the world's clock reset. Okay. And we actually do that. We change time because we want, we want in the northern hemisphere, you know, June, July, August to always be summer months. Mm -hmm. We just want that. Even though, even though if we didn't change time, now astronomers, we can't just change time, right? Right. So we have a thing called the Julian calendar. We right. do Julian dates and we, they don't change. We don't, we don't, we don't have leap year and we don't, we don't take out two weeks like uh, was it King Gregory just removed from the, 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 the calendar and stuff like that. So we just, there's, you know, we, we say, Hey, here's, here's what we're going to call day zero. And we're just going to go forward. But us humans, we, we have changed it. So we're trying to yeah. keep it. We're keeping it. So the seasons mm -hmm. will still be the same. Yeah. The, I had this guy yell at me in the lobby a couple of years ago when I was talking about, Ashley, I was talking about global warming. And, um, I, I said the sun actually has the most to do with the temperature of the earth over what we're doing on it and he he screamed at me in the in the was i factually correct or no yeah so yeah so in fact uh, i've talked to some people that i mean i don't think he goes to sounds anymore. solar solar physics isn't my area of astrophysics but i've talked to people who who are in that area and they basically say they go look um uh, this is i this was just from one physics friend of mine says you know well you're my only physics yeah <laughs> he says we have like maybe a million years left okay in, now now most people say well there's five billion years of fuel left in the sun but he's going like it's heating up mm. in a million years now it won't be livable for humans mm. and so he goes and so um and should i, I worry know, about that a million years from now yeah i think 
we humans can destroy ourselves before then. Okay. Right. Right. So I can just- <laughs> I think put, it'll all be over so before just, then. Yeah. I, can just, I felt like I needed to add that to my list of things to be anxious about. Did you guys feel that too? I was like, okay, I'm going to die in a million years yeah. or, or perhaps sooner. So, um, but what I teach my students is is all about, it's about balance. I mean, what's sinful is gluttony, right? Mm-hmm. And just almost anything. So if we're putting a bunch of carbon dioxide up there and we're just not taking care of the planet, we're doing this, we're taking trees down, we're destroying trees and we're doing, we're polluting right. things, you know, to for gluttony reasons. Like, oh, we want this, we want that, we want to consume this. You know, that's the problem. Right. Um, so I should get rid of my private jet. Yeah. The greenhouse gases are not the problem. Do you know, if, if we got rid of all the greenhouse gases on earth mm-hmm. that we always complain about, oh, this emits greenhouse gases. You, you get to drive in a special lane if you have a car that doesn't right. emit greenhouse gases, right? If we got rid of all the greenhouse gases on earth, the average temperature on earth would be about negative 23 degrees Celsius. Water oh. freezes at zero degrees Celsius, yeah. right? So this is colder than the ice cubes in your fridge. Mm. So the point is, balance mm. the point has always been about balance gluttony's the problem you know right. in other words and then, then we have to have a discussion well how warm do you want it to be warm what 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 do you want you know it, is it getting too warm because we're we're going to be heading into another ice age in our twenty thousand years or so okay we're should, I, wor- back should in, I worry about that i uh, i don't know i don't know how many great 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 grandchildren there at that point well i have no grandchildren because okay. my children don't care about me <laughs> I have no comment. I know my daughter, my daughter's in the room. She's not want to make babies. I want babies. But I, I teach a balance approach. I go there. I mean, we, we need to, we, I, I honestly believe in classes, if you are just plain truthful, mm-hmm. people can handle the truth. They can handle that. Hey, the temperature on earth is going to go up and down whether humans are here or not. Right. Now, can we affect that up and down? Yes. Can we prolong heated periods? Yes. Could we do the reverse? Yes. Can mm-hmm. we make it colder longer? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, what we do on earth will make differences. You know, it's all about, we need to have a discussion on what do we want and for how long mm-hmm. and, um, you know. All right. Okay. Last question. We're going to wrap it up with this. Sasquatch. Sasquatch. Real or fake? <laughs> This is the most important question. Is it again? Uh, when I, I was a kid, I was really afraid of Sasquatch. Were you? Yes. Right. Um, I grew up in Northern California. Okay. What do you think? I'm going to say fake. Okay. That hurts, but I, I respect that. Respect that. I want him to be real. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for listening so much. Thank you, Dr. Buchholz. Make sure that you sign up for the class. We're going to put this in the notes, how to do that uh, at Hunter Park with Dr. Jim Buchholz, who says... Pastor Matt Brown was the most amazing science student he has ever encountered in the history of his life, so much so that he remembers a dynamic question that I asked. I'm not going to say how many years ago. Thank you for being on the show, Jim. Love you. Appreciate you. Thank you for coming to Sandals. And thank you for being a scientist who loves Jesus. So uh, sign up for his class. Invite your friends. uh, Connect with people at Hunter Park. Thanks for listening, Debrief Audience. I love you, and I know I'm no Donna, but I did the best that I can. Thanks for listening to the Debrief Podcast with Matt Brown. If you enjoyed this episode, consider liking, subscribing, and sharing it with a friend. If you would like to submit a question to Pastor Matt, you can do so at move.sc slash ask. And if you would like to support the work we are doing, consider donating at donate.sc. Thank you again and have a blessed day.